Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. And she became a picture of the message that God, as I told you, the, the whole of the Bible is one story and she, this fits the one story. That God was calling people to be faithful to him just like Rahul was faithful to Dodi. Despite the temptations, over recent weeks, Dr. Corbett has been engaged in a brief four-part series looking at the most inspirational women of the Bible. We've heard that women have held significant roles in biblical history, and the woman featured in tonight's message is no exception. Strangely, we will never know her name, but her legacy is inspirational. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for the third in the series, tonight, The Shulamite Woman. Holy Spirit, we come now into your presence. And I pray, Lord, that as I stand here by myself, that, Lord, I will disappear and people will see you. That, Father, people will hear you today. And that, God, for those who have come with all kinds of unanswered questions, unmet needs, some even with some confusion, Father, for those who are watching by webcast now, those who are listening by radio now, that, Father, you would speak to them despite the difference in distance and time. And, Lord, I pray that it will be by your Spirit taking your word that, Father, people will get it and they'll see you and they'll see that Christianity is not merely mental assent but it is a spiritual transformation, eyes being opened spiritually. And that, Lord, you will continue to do that in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been looking at the most inspirational women of the Bible, and we've looked at some pretty inspirational women. I think we've seen Hannah, very inspirational. We've seen Ruth, very inspirational. And today... I'm going to say, I'm going to pin my colours to the mast here because in many respects, if we, if we look at what the Bible says about women, there's many to choose from as far as inspirational women. Many, actually, which is very, very surprising. It's surprising from a comparison of other religious books where women don't feature that prominently. But in the Bible, women feature very prominently. Mary, the mother of Jesus, perhaps a girl of some 15, maybe 15 years of age when God called her to conceive, miraculously conceive the Son of God in human form, would arguably be the woman that God chose and therefore probably the greatest woman. That's not to say we venerate her or worship her, but we do recognise that as far as people who are prepared to serve God, she's probably right, the, right up there. The woman that I'm going to talk about this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And I need to explain it because if I don't explain it, some of you are going to think I haven't done it justice. So let me explain it this way. What we have... Here is 66 books that comprise the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And 
If we had the time, I would show you that I believe, and I think I have good reasons to believe, that God has miraculously put this together. And, and it's amazing how he's done it. He's used some 40 different authors. He's used authors from at least four continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. And here we have the total agreement. It's amazing that you, you can put four people in a room and they'll disagree. But you have 40 people spread over a period of some 1,500 years from four different continents. And they agree. So it's quite amazing. And the story is the same. And this is the beautiful thing about the Bible. It's a story. It has a beginning in, and it actually starts off in the beginning. It has an end. It actually talks about how time itself will be culminated. In between, it has the, the, the powerful elements of a story. And the powerful elements of a story are what's, what's called a plot. Something happens. And we have what, if you ever study English literature... You'll, you'll know that they teach you to look for what's called the protagonist, the, the main character. And there's definitely a main character in the Bible. And that is God himself. And then there are supporting actors, and they're all through the scriptures. And then there's the hero, and the hero is Jesus. And the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and the New Testament points back to the Old Testament. So one is looking forward, one is looking back, and we can look back on both now. And it's, it's an amazing story. When Jesus came, he taught the essence of the first 39 books. He referred several times to the prophets. He said, the prophet Daniel said, the, um, as Jonah was. And, and he referred to these people, not as myths, not as ideas, but as actual people. So this gives us tremendous credibility that Jesus, who no one could fault, gave the Old Testament the, the ultimate tick of endorsement. But when Jesus, the, the greatest Bible teacher who ever walked the earth, preached, do you notice he never began the way I nearly always begin? He never did that. He never said, open your Bibles. Turn to. He never did that. In fact, the way Jesus taught was to a people who had largely become unfamiliar with the Bible, which is the weirdest thing. Because these were the people whom God said, when you have children, I want you to take the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, Penta five, the first five books of the Bible, and I want you, to, I want you parents to memorize them. And then with that memory, I want whenever you walk with your children, I want you to tell them. What's in the first five books? When you sit down, I want you to talk to them about it. When you stand up, I want you to talk to them about God's word. When you go out fishing, talk about my word, God says. So this was to be completely enculturated into every fabric of their life. And they didn't do it. They forgot. They forgot God, they forgot his word and Jesus comes along and he takes advantage of a distant memory, the memory of God and his word. And he would tell stories and he would tell stories like this. There was once a father who had two sons and you know the story? There was once a man who had great harvest, a great harvest and he, he filled his barns and he said, let me sit back and eat, drink and be merry 
But that night, Jesus said, his soul was required of him and he died and he went to Hades, the place of the dead. And in Hades, Jesus says he was in torment. So Jesus told these stories as a way of taking God's word and making it real to people. And and I guess if you were astute, you could go, oh, that's like Leviticus chapter 19. Which I'm pretty sure Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, love your neighbour as yourself. But he never told anyone where he was getting it from. He just told a story about the Good Samaritan that illustrated Deuteronomy chapter 19. So with that, I want to tell you a story this morning. I've never told it in this church. I've told it once in my life. And that was in Queensland. They were the crash test dummies. The car didn't crash. So let's see how we go. And I've prefaced two things. Firstly, I've told you I'm going to talk to you about the woman that I consider to be next to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the most inspirational woman in the Bible. And secondly, I've told you that I'm going to take a great chunk of the first 39 books of the Bible. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to say this. Let me tell you a story. This is a story about a family that once owned a vineyard. The family was a family business. Mother and father, at least three sons and at least one daughter. Three brothers and their sister worked long hours under the Mediterranean sun. In fact, they were at a place, as we'll see in a moment, and that's the background picture. They were at a place called Engedi. By the way, this is a true story. The parents died. And so the workload increased when their parents died. The brothers and the sister, the young, very young sister, struggled to keep up with all that was required, especially if you've ever seen a vineyard and you've seen what's required to keep the grass down. They, they struggled. So they formed an agreement with their neighbours next door who kept sheep. They were shepherds. And the agreement was, you can come in and eat our grass keep the weeds down and, and that will help us and that will help you. So it was an agreement. And the girl, the, the, the daughter, I, I'm, I'm going to give her a name and it's a Hebrew word and you'll see why I've chosen this. And I've, I've chosen this, you'll, you'll see why. I'm going to call her Rahya. Rahya. And over time, Rahya, the daughter, the, the sister to the brothers, struck up a friendship with the young shepherd whom I'm going to also use a Hebrew word for and I'm going to use the word Dodi. And this kind of ticked off her brothers because she was kind of supposed to be helping out a bit more than she was and she was fluttering her eyelids with this young boy and he was quite interested in her too. And they really got close and over the years, Raya's brothers actually came to see that Dottie was actually a pretty hard worker. And he was actually doing exactly what the agreement was, which, which was to keep the weeds down, the grass down. Made it a lot easier for them. And then the time came as the, the years went by, that Dottie came to not Raya's 
parents because they were deceased and they, they, Dottie came to Raya's brothers and said, I'm in love with your sister. May I please have her hand in marriage? They were quite young. Not so young that they couldn't marry, but quite young. And the brothers did what any parents would have done. They've said, if you pay the dowry, you can marry. And so that would take a little bit of time. But that began what was called in those days the betrothal. And the betrothal was a little bit more formal than an engagement in our culture. And they were now betrothed and they looked forward to their life together. Around Engedi, you'll notice in the background just the hint of the picture there, and that's a picture from today of Engedi. It's a major tourist attraction today. People go there today, they, they are bust in there, it's, and it's about 50 miles south, southwest, sorry, south, southeast of Jerusalem. And it's a place that's incredibly unusual because although it's on the right on the the, the coastline of the Dead Sea, it, it has a freshwater spring. It's what we might call an oasis, and there's lots of water there. And back in the day, it was a very, very lush place. And today, it's still relatively lush. So we get a hint of what would have happened, but they spent many hours wandering down to the, the nearby. It wasn't that far. It was just a stroll from where they were the Engedi Oasis and they spent afternoons walking there and there, were, there was lush vegetation there and they would lie in the vegetation and their relationship was, was extremely upright, very pure. There was, there was nothing untoward happening because they looked forward to their wedding day and they didn't want to spoil it. And they both had a keen sense, as most people who live in the country do, that there is a God. People in the city don't have that same keenness, by the way. Well, they developed their friendship, and one day, this was all happening around about 960 or so BC. One day, the king came. He came to the oasis at Engedi because it's lovely fresh water, and where he was, there was no fresh water. Not like this anyway, and so he came to bathe as many people did, especially the wealthy. And he saw Raya. And he ordered his security detail to bring her back with them to Jerusalem because the king could have any woman he wanted. And he wanted her. Didn't ask. Certainly didn't go to her brothers. Just took her. Raya was taken to the palace and presented to the king in his chamber. He tried to overawe her with his wealth. He was incredibly wealthy. He tried to lavish upon her gifts, unbelievable gifts, to woo her. But she refused. He flattered her, told her she was the most beautiful woman in the world. She wasn't moved. He the then most powerful man in the world, could not have his way with her. The king ordered his security detail, take her to the harem. Take her to where my harem is. When I'm ready for her, I will summon her. (laughs) 
kind of a nice way of covering up rejection, I think. In the harem, Raya pines for her betrothed, the shepherd boy, Dotty, and longs for him to come and to rescue her. The other women of the harem, of whom there were some 800, this king was very busy. They gathered around Rayo and they asked her. There she is pining for her betrothed. And they said to her, tell us about your betrothed. What's he like? What does he look like? Who is he? She tells them that her beloved is a shepherd and he may be found where the shepherds of Engedi pasture their flocks. And that night, she cries herself to sleep, desperately missing Dottie. And she dreams a dream. And in her dream, she dreams that Dottie comes the 50 miles from Engedi on foot because he loves her and he's come to rescue her. This is in her dream. The next night she cries herself asleep again, but she hears from her window out in the streets of Jerusalem someone calling out, Rayo, Rayo, where are you? Rayo goes out from her, her room in the harem and goes down and, and she asks the night watchman, have you heard someone calling for me? My beloved, have you seen him? And the night watchman says, I don't know who your beloved is. Then, as he's finished telling her that, she hears Dottie again and she runs and she finds him and together they embrace. And he says to her, it's okay, I'm here now. Let's go. And he and she walk back in the night, the 50 miles back to their home at Engedi. When the king finds out what Dottie has done, that he's taken Rahul from the harem and returned home, he is outraged. And he gathers soldiers, tells them, man the chariots, get your spears your shields and your swords and we march now. The king goes down to Engedi with chariots, soldiers, swords, spears and shields, finds her and forcibly takes her back to Jerusalem. And he is absolutely determined that he is going to seduce her now. No woman has ever refused him. He uses gifts of jewellery. He gives her perfume. He tries to entice her with alcohol. He then offers her drugs in an attempt to cause her to lose her inhibitions and her reservations about him. But she refuses. Not only that, when he demands that she unlock her bedroom door and let him in, she says, no. Rayor refused every advance 
the king made because she was faithful to Dottie, her betrothed. The king sent her back to the harem from his palace. And the other women hear what she's done. They wouldn't dare do what she's done, but they have utmost respect for her because she has stood up to the most powerful man on the planet. This goes on. Again, Dottie comes to rescue her. She hears him again. She goes out. This time, the night watchman says, Ah, it's you. I've been told you might try to do this. He grabs the stick that he keeps watch with and he hits her and drags her back into the harem. Months go by, years go by, and still she refuses every advance of the king. And eventually she wore the king down. And the king accepted defeat that he would not ever have his way with Rahul. She would not betray her vows to her beloved Dottie. And so he let her go. Rahul returned home, walking on foot the 50 miles back home, where she was met by her older brothers who've wondered one question. Have you been faithful? The way they worded it in their culture was this. Have you been a strong wall? And she declares, I was young when I was taken. In fact, her expressions were something like this. When I was taken, and excuse the language, but it is in the text, my breasts were like dates. Now they're like coconuts. Just it's in the text. I have been a strong wall. She assured her brothers that she had remained, here's a word we don't hear often these days, chaste. And she had kept herself only for her betrothed. Rahul told her brothers of the king's lavish offers and the last offer he gave her when she said, will you let me go home? I want to go back to my vineyard. The king said, I have a vineyard. I'll give it to you. I have a thousand staff who man it. You can have the lot. Just let me have my way with you. She tells her brothers this. And as she is talking with her brothers, telling them, I have not betrayed Dottie. Not at all. Word gets out. Rayo's back. And Dottie soon hears of it. And we are now in Song of Solomon. And we are in Song of Solomon. And we're about the last chapter. And in the last chapter of the Song of Solomon, we are going to see the Dotty hears of Rayor's return. And if I may paraphrase the last few verses of Song of Solomon, 
the last two verses, it would be like this. Dottie hears that Rayor is now back. He comes running over the hill, running over the hill. And he's calling out, Rayor, Rayor. And Rayor hears him. And Rayor turns to Dottie, her beloved, and she says, Come on! Let's get it on! Dottie! Which is the Hebrew word for darling and beloved. And what I've just done, apart from scare some of you, is I've now taken you through every verse in the Song of Solomon. And the one that I'm calling, darling, Rayor, I don't know a name. But this is the name I'm giving her because that's what she's called by her beloved. And to me, this is a powerful, powerful book. And I know that there are many people that have looked at the Song of Solomon and thought, what the heck is that about? And I hope I've just told you what it's about. And many people have looked at Song of Solomon and have bewilderingly thought it was about Solomon. In one sense, it is. But they've thought, I've heard people say, Song of Solomon is a book that celebrates the virtues and the joys of monogamous marriage. It's a celebration of monogamous marriage. Can I tell you, if this is a celebration of monogamous marriage and Solomon is the guy that's been used to extol monogamous marriage, you picked the wrong guy. He had 800 wives. In fact, sorry, let me, let me clarify that number. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, it says he had 700 wives. The other 300 were called concubines. This is not your ideal model for monogamous marriage. But it is a picture of what God was saying to Israel at this time. And he used an actual girl to make the point. You see, some have said this is about erotic love and they say, you know, his hand is on the latch but the latch is locked and that's a picture of, you know, making foreplay and it's the first stage in erotic love. And I think King Solomon's hand was on the latch and she locked it. I'm actually encouraging you to read this quite literally. When it says she went out to the night watchman in chapter 2 and said, I hear my beloved, have you seen my beloved? And the night watchman says, who's your beloved? He actually didn't know who her beloved was because if it was Solomon, that would be a weird question, wouldn't it? And she became a picture of the message that God, as I told you, the whole of the Bible is one story and she This fits the one story that God was calling people to be faithful to him just like Rahul was faithful to Dottie despite the temptations. If this is about erotic love in Song of Solomon it's completely out of step with everything else in the Bible. It would be an inconsistency in the Bible. And I've read scholars who haven't seen this point at all 
So one of the things I want to encourage you to do if you are looking at Song of Solomon, which is just before the book of Isaiah, you'll see in here it says he, others, she, daughters of Jerusalem, and the publisher has put that in. And they're completely unhelpful. It's not in the original text. Someone's tried to help you, but it's not helping. Because they assume it's about Solomon and this girl and how they get married. And it's not. She refuses him. And so be very careful about publisher's notes. If you know anything about King Solomon at this time, you'll know that it was actually his many wives that led him astray. They led him into idol worship and polygamy, adultery. And so, uh, sorry, sorry, idolatry, excuse me. And his many, many wives brought with them their many, many gods. And this was abhorrent. So, when we read Song of Solomon and we see the girl talking about her beloved, she's not talking about Solomon, she's talking about the one whom she says you can find him where the shepherds pasture their flocks. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select The Most Inspirational Women of the Bible, Part 3, The Shulamite Woman. As we've heard tonight, despite incredible temptation, the passage of time and the apparent absence of hope, one woman remained faithful. A clear demonstration of faithfulness in action and the expectation of God for his people. More from Dr. Corbett next week for the final in the series on the most inspirational women of the Bible, Esther. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.